Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Unlike the movie... He actually appeared at the back door with the firearm at his side and it was partially hidden. And then he quickly brought it up and he fired it straight at us. Around sunset on a Tuesday in November 1990, the seaside village of Aramoana became the scene of what was then New Zealand's worst mass shooting. This is Crimes NZ, and I'm Jesse Mulligan. In this episode, we have some graphic descriptions, so listener discretion is advised. Let's begin with the news the country woke up to the morning after David Gray went on his rampage. Zealand. This is Morning Report. I'm Kim Hill. And I'm Jeff Robinson. People in Aramoana near Dunedin are waking this morning to a tragedy which hit the tiny township last night, leaving at least two dead, several missing feared dead and three injured. A five-year-old boy and a 62-year-old man are dead after a lone gunman ran amok, firing indiscriminately, and a police officer is also feared dead, while other local residents are missing and possibly dead. Local people have reported seeing bodies lying in the streets of the township, which is at the head of the Otago Harbour. Thirteen people were killed that day, and the youngest was just five years old. Our guest this episode is Tim Ashton. He was a member of the anti-terrorist squad sent into Aramoana to capture David Gray. Yes, we heard it over the uh, media evening before, and then we got called out at about 8pm. We were called into the Christchurch police station where we assembled and we made our way to Dunedin via a military Andover. Did you know much about the situation you were heading into? It's like a lot of situations that police deal with on a regular basis. A tragedy of that scale, you know someone's missing. We knew a police sergeant was missing. We knew that people had been shot. We knew that people had been um, murdered. We didn't know how many We didn't know where they were. The police at the scene were trying to gather as much information as they could. So like a lot of things that police go to, they don't have a a clear picture of everything when they arrive. By the way, the anti-terrorist squad, that's a a name people might not be very familiar with. It's called the Special Tactics Group now, I think. And how is it different to the Armed Defenders Squad? Well, the anti-terrorist squad's uh, genesis was during the time of the hijackings and embassy hostage takings. And it varies from the armed defender squad that you receive specialist training using automatic weapons, uh, techniques to enter buildings, to abseil, to uh, they can use explosive entry. It's, it's a higher level than the armed defenders because occasionally the police do have to go in first and rescue people. How many people had been killed when your specialist squad was called in? We didn't know the exact number. 
We knew there had been fatalities, but no one knew exactly how many. And we later found out that it was something like 13, I think, by nightfall. Um, what do we know about how the incident started? What prompted David Gray to do this? <sighs> Who can answer what, what prompts a human being to go and slaughter innocent men, women and children? I mean, there is no answer to that. It was some. It was basically an argument over um, there was pets involved, property boundaries, really over nothing. And just to set the scene for people who don't know much about the details of this, what what had happened in that town, you know, before you arrived? What had happened is before we got there, he had killed all the people that that that, that, that were murdered at that scene. And then he had gone to ground. He'd shot uh, also in the evening. Two two police officers went in and rescued a um, a child. Uh, they went in at night before we got there, not knowing at all where the offender was, uh, and tried to secure anyone that they could find that had been injured. So here's the police commissioner at the time, John Jamieson, talking to Kim Hill on Morning Report, and this audio comes to us courtesy of Ngatanga Sound Archives. He apparently started shooting indiscriminately. That was reported to the Port Chalmers Police, where Sergeant Guthrie was on duty on his own. Uh, Sergeant Guthrie's a very experienced armed defenders squad member, and he decided to come down on his own and endeavour to attend to it because light was failing, and he obviously wanted to take advantage of the last bit of light. On the way down, the sergeant picked up a uh, off-duty constable, uh, more or less by coincidence that he happened to encounter him, and he brought him down with him so that two of them actually arrived. And, uh, and they endeavoured to, to deal with the situation in the failing light, uh, with a further backup patrol arriving shortly from Dunedin. And it was in that scenario that, that the sergeant was shot and killed, and there were, by that time there were injured people and some people dead, and the, the remaining police members that arrived uh, couldn't uh, apprehend the offender, so they uh, took away as many of the injured people as they could. And there were some people who we believe were dead at that time that they just couldn't get to at that stage. Was Sergeant Guthrie armed? Yes, yeah, Sergeant Guthrie was armed. And as I say, he was a very experienced armed defender squad member. Uh, he'd been in the armed defender squad for 15 years, so, <clears throat> so he had a lot of experience. But he would obviously have preferred to have had a full squad call out but I think because of the the fact this person was still likely to be shooting and killing people and and because of the failing light he decided to take the forward action initially on his own and then with the help that was arriving. That's from Morning Report at the time I'm speaking to Tim Ashton who was a member of the anti-terrorist squad that was sent in to look for the killer David Gray. What happened that day? Well we were first of all put in the local rugby club and then that what happens with a scene the armed defenders go in and they secured it by securing the outer perimeter of the village we went in and what we did was search every house. We did 29 houses before we located them. And we go in and what's called assault the house. We, we tear gas it or we stun grenade it. We go in, we clear it. We make sure that there's nobody in there. We make sure that uh, the house is cleared. And when we move on and secure a block, then the armed defenders come in afterwards and they secure that block. And then you keep moving. Yes, he was missing. You didn't know where he was. And do you remember the sort of what you were going through emotionally, if anything, as you as you searched the town? It's a strange thing with emotions, and you'll talk to all policemen or any emergency services who go to a, a serious incident. 
for that time, you are just doing your job. You're focused on what you're trained to do. Your total focus is on um, how you can how you can save someone, what you can do practically at the time. And not knowing where he was, uh, he'd taken a shot at a helicopter and that was the last sighting of him. But the, the guys and the whole team, all the police there, were just focused on doing their job at the time. It's not till later when you sit down and think about it. And, on you. Yeah. How long were you looking for him? We started looking for him at exactly uh, six o'clock in the morning. And by coincidence, we located him at almost exactly six o'clock in the evening. We found Sergeant Guthrie during the day. And I, and I want to emphasize that, you know, has, he has a son who still lives there. He was an extremely brave man and he went in with a revolver virtually on his own as the other constable only had a small calibre rifle uh, to attempt to apprehend David Gray, and he did that so that, in his mind, that he could try and stop that situation, but he, he couldn't. Should we be surprised that in a relatively small town it took 12 hours to find him? Yes, uh, you've got to... First of all, the whole the whole place has to be secured, You've got to put in inner, outer cordons. You've got to put in uh, observation points. Uh, you've got to have a plan of action. You've got to have command and control. Uh, and then when you're carrying out your task, you've got to constantly stop, reform, re-move on. We've searched 29 houses. Now, when you've got to start doing that, including the offenders' houses, this is not... It's a very slow process. Sometimes the public thinks that the police can just go in and solve it in one minute, but you've got to have a plan. So as the sun set, your squad began to move in on what would turn out to be his location. Did you know where he was at that point, or were you still just going house by house and hoping for the best? Oh, we had no idea where he was. No, we were doing house by house, um, as we said to clear all those houses because you had to discount every property you went past. When we approached that house, we started to, um, we noticed that one of the windows seemed to be ajar, so we went to put a stun grenade in, but that was, um, the window was actually, it put mattresses up against the window and sort of in a fortress sort of situation and the stun grenade bounced out and blew up. And at that stage, he started shooting at us. Well, it's a pretty dicey situation. I mean, I'm sure that you had as much protection as you possibly could, but to have someone shooting at you from inside a house must have been pretty scary and, and must have been a high risk of one of you getting injured. Yes. Look, um, I don't want to make out I did anything special here. Um, all police uh, in many years since then, and, and we know the recent horrendous tragedy uh, at the mosque, I mean, please just keep going because you, you can't leave, you can't run away. Uh, and, and at that time, you're not thinking of being scared. You're just thinking, well, I've, you know, I've, I've got to carry on and do my job here. So tell us what happened then. Well, at that stage, um, unlike the movie, he actually appeared at the back door with the firearm at his side and it was partially hidden because we'd called on him to come out of the address uh, the police were here and he was to come outside immediately. Um, he snuck out the door with the firearm at his side and then he quickly brought it up 
and fired it in our direction. Um, there was two of us there, uh, Peter McCarthy and myself, and he fired it uh, straight at us. Upon that, both of us returned fire and hit him five times before he fell to the ground and um, he started screaming out obscenities. And at that stage, he was handcuffed and the firearm was removed from from his grasp or from from anywhere he could get near it. And he was subdued. And at that stage, because he was subdued and held by us, uh, that was our job done. And then at that stage, we called and uh, we had to call in to headquarters what we'd done and they called the ambulance service in. Was it pretty clear he was going to die? Um, it's very difficult to tell when someone's going to die, but... Uh, he had quite he had quite some um, serious wounds, and within a few minutes, he he just went still. Can you remember the immediate aftermath? It's it's a strange feeling when police or you're involved in those high stress incidents that it's uh, all of a sudden it's over, and you just quietly sort of move on. And it's, it's, as I said, it's not till sort of days later that it sort of dawns on you, really. RNZ spoke to shocked residents at the time, uh, some of whom were critical of how long it took police to get to residents who were in hiding. Here's Jonathan Todd. The dead are dead. Today there were people who were holed up down in houses down at the spit there, while the police didn't give a tuppenny damn about getting them out, and that worries me a lot. They were running around doing what they do, I suppose, while there were people cowering under tables, expecting to be murdered any moment, and they quite possibly would have been murdered. People who've lost friends and children and so forth, well, just just, just over time, they, they're going to notice, oh, we must go down and say hello to Gary. Gary's gone, you know. We're going to see Warren and Kathy and Sam and Leo. Leo's dead. Now, this is going to take a long time for, for just to just to sink in that the world's changed. Tim, did you come across any of those people who were in hiding as you were searching Aramoana? Uh, yes, we, we did locate people and we did remove people. Uh, look, I can't comment on that, gentlemen. Look, in high stress, when you've lost loved ones, dear friends, those that are close to you, you do say things. Uh, it's... Don't, for a moment, every police officer there was doing everything they could to save everyone, and that's quite common. As a result of that, I became really strongly involved in advocating change for uh, firearm uh, legislation in New Zealand, and I, and I still um, believe we need that change. We don't need those type of weapons in our community. Uh, luckily, um, there's been legislation recently uh, after the mosque shooting, which have come some way to redress that balance. Yeah, on that topic, uh, here's the Prime Minister at the time, Jim Bolger. It's an enormous tragedy. It's something that no country uh, can really comprehend till it happens, and New Zealand thus far has always avoided that. And um, it's now struck us, and it's, it's an enormous blow to the community, but it's a special and particular blow to the family's concern. I just want to extend my sympathy and the government's sympathy to all of those involved. The police, I think, have performed uh, quite superbly in the circumstances, but the tragedy has still happened.
Does it say something about New Zealand in 1990? Hopefully not. Uh, I don't believe we should um, castigate New Zealanders collectively for the actions of one man. Uh, it does, however, tend to reflect what's happened internationally, and such uh, violent rampages are unfortunately not unique internationally. And it raises the question, as was raised by the Minister of Police, as to whether the gun laws we have in New Zealand are adequate and sufficient. And interestingly enough, of course, the police on their own volition took steps a few months ago to limit or control uh, multiple shot firearms. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have to revisit, I'm sure the public will want us to revisit that issue to see whether our current laws, our current uh, practices are adequate. Are you making a commitment to do that? Oh, we certainly will do that. And um, what the outcome, I won't try to prejudge. And I'm sure there'll be arguments from the, uh, the sports lobbies that uh, every gun's a potential weapon, and that's true. But uh, we can't ignore the scale of the tragedy and the fact that it was carried out per use of a, of a high-fire, rapid-fire gun, an AK-47 lookalike or something like that. Was there change at that time, Tim? No. And myself, along with a uh, professor of peace and conflict studies at Otago University, um, Professor Clements, and the President of the Police Association, for a number of years were contacting all political parties. There was three, three professional reports done, all virtually saying what, what was recommended immediately after the mosque. No party wanted to do any substantial change till after the mosque shooting. And I'm not trying to talk about politics here, but I do um, totally respect the decisions that were made by the incumbent government, which was made with total party support, apart from one person, to change the legislation. We still have no firearms register. We still allow Category A firearms to be sold. If you have a licence in mass, you don't have to say who you sold it to. You only have to cite the licence. There's recently been a... 45 um, calibre revolver rifle allowed into the country under a A category licence that can easily be made into a revolver. Uh, we should have the police need to know, the public need to know who owns firearms. If I have a Honda 50 motorcycle, I have to register it. And did we learn anything else from Aramoana? Anything about David Gray, anything about his background that we could have spotted? Any way we could have seen this coming? That's a question that is asked always after these horrendous events. All of the, Both of these tragedies happened because we allowed, as a nation, the people to buy military assault rifles legally. Your view is that we might not be able to stop people like this um, living in New Zealand and, and trying this sort of thing, but if they had access to less powerful weapons, at least perhaps the damage might not be as great? I say my view. I mean, nobody can predict what another human being will do. No mm. one can predict why someone commits an evil act. But we can say with, with factual, and facts are important, that both of those events happened because both offenders had high-powered military assault rifles which they bought legally if they couldn't get hold of them then it would have been extremely difficult for them to carry out those horrendous murders 
You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan, and you can find more episodes of this series on the RNZ Podcasts page. It's also on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you catch your favourite podcasts. Catch up on the series. There are six seasons worth of episodes, from the mysterious disappearance of Heidi Charles to the brazen waterfront robbery. I'm on RNZ each afternoon from 1 till 4 with an upbeat mix of New Zealand stories from the curious to the compelling, so tune in to RNZ National. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.